I want to invite all of you here to uh, turn to the book of Leviticus, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus, yes, chapter 25. We're in a series called The Beautiful Collision because, uh, we're calling it that because there is this disruptive effect that uh, happens when you let your life be filled with the Spirit of God. It is. It's, it's disruptive. And like we're talking about being filled with the Spirit. That's what the Scripture, the way the Scripture describes it, being filled. It's not just sort of like being, you know, politely touched by the Spirit of God or, you know, sort of like blessed a little bit and then sent on your way. But it's like being filled, right? And when God is allowed to fully have His way in your home, in your marriage, in your finances, in your career, in your worship, in your habits, in your opinions, uh, in your communication, in your stuff, what happens is, is that the kingdom, this kingdom Jesus talks about, becomes so real. It becomes real. It starts to become, it's not just like some kind of theoretical, esoteric idea, you know, that sort of floats around the spiritual quadrant of your brain. It, it is the flesh and blood kingdom of God. It takes on flesh and bone. It becomes alive and manifest, and, and it permeates every, every part of your life. And that's what we're talking about in this series. This kingdom of God, when we let it, it affects your decisions. It affects your attitudes towards other people. It, it even affects your relationship with your, with your stuff, with your time. And so this morning, what we're going to be focusing on, I want to talk about our money and our possessions and, and our visa bills and our bank account and some of this kind of stuff. How, however big or little your, your bank account may be, I want to explore our relationship to our stuff, the stuff we own, the stuff in our closets and in the garage. Um, and what kind of space do those things take up in our soul? So first, before we we look at some of the things that Jesus has to say. I want to give a little bit of background so that when we get to the sayings of Jesus, uh, things will make a little more sense. So we're going to look in Leviticus. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. And uh, the, the Torah is sometimes translated law or principles or precepts or commands, decrees. Maybe the best way to think of the Torah is the way. The way. So the first five books outline how to live in God's world, God's way. And so central to the Jewish people for thousands of years has been this passionate application of the Torah, the passionate discussion and debate, and, and how do we live these words? And, and, and remember, for, for most Jewish people in Jesus' day, they had Torah memorized. So this was so internalized for them. Torah was everything. So Leviticus 25, it's an important part, uh, section of the Torah called the year of Jubilee. Okay, here we're going to start right. We're going to jump around uh, pretty quickly here. Uh, in verse 10, it says, consecrate. Remember that set apart, make sacred. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. The 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants it shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. Verse 14 says, If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. Verse 17 says, Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Verse 23 says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. And you're just residing in my land as foreigners and strangers. Foreigners and strangers, this word we would say like resident aliens. So in other words, you are, you're in the world, but you're not of this world. And so it's a very, it's a whole different way of looking at our possessions. And so 
back in the day here, in this, the day of Leviticus, the law, uh, everybody had their ancestral piece of land that was given to them by God, divided between the tribes and then the clans and the families. This land would be passed down from your grandpa and your grandpa, 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 all the way down to you. And uh, this, this land was how you made your living, working this piece of land. And God says, don't let anybody lose their family land and every 50 years return all the family land back to the original owners. And just kind of imagine the kind of upheaval that would call us, cause us today, right? Set all the debts aside. Torch the visa headquarters, right? This is like Occupy Wall Street. Uh, can, can you imagine what this would do to an economy like ours that is actually built on the existence of debt, right? That, that's what makes our economy thrive. It's unthinkable for us today. But it was so important to God in that day that his people in Israel not be burdened by the kind of generational, systemic poverty and debt that God says every 50 years, all the debt gets wiped away. Press the reset button, right? Fresh start. And don't take advantage of anybody, he says. Notice how it goes even deeper in verse 25. If one of your fellow Israelites does become poor and sell some of their property, the nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold, right? So if one of your neighbors is in bad shape financially uh, and, and thinking, well, in order to pay the debts, maybe I need to sell off a little bit of family land. He's saying, don't let them. As a fellow Israelite, you step in and you say, I'm going to take care of this. I'll help him. Don't let anybody get under huge debt and sell off all their inheritance. Now, verse 35, it says, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. In other words, that hospitality. Let them just live with you like you would a guest so they can continue to live among you. Don't take interest. That word uh, sometimes is called like usury. Literally, it's sort of like an upfront fee or, you know, a down payment. Don't take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. And notice here how, how you treat your neighbor is so tied up. How, how you treat them with dignity is so tied up with your respect, your honor for God. It says, don't do this, but fear God. Now watch the progression continues as things, things might get even worse. In verse uh, 39, it says, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They're to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They're to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Jubilee, everything, all the debts are canceled. So central to the Torah back in this day was this command of God that whatever you do, don't take advantage of somebody. If they're down, don't exploit you know, their misfortune so you can have more, so you can make a little money off their misfortune. And in case one person starts to accumulate more and more and more and more, and in the process, because someone else is getting poorer and poorer, if there starts to be this gap between the haves and the have-nots, boy, every 50 years, wipe all the debts, return all the land to the original families, give everybody a fresh start. Now, let's flip over to chapter 19. In chapter 19, verse 9, it says this, when you reap, this is, it even, now it's going to talk about like when you're harvesting your own land. When you reap the harvest on your land, don't reap to the very edges of the field or gather gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. So God says, even when you're harvesting your, your, own, your own land that you worked so hard for, even when you're doing that, 
as stuff falls out, you just leave it. Leave a little on the edges. Don't clean your plate, right? And, and so that everybody who's hungry can come and have their needs met. We see this, uh, uh, this uh, illustrated really clearly in the, in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, she, her, the way she makes a living is by gleaning the fields. And that's what she would do. She would come along after the, the owner had come and done his harvest. She would come through and gather enough for her and her family. And so it's kind of actually it's sort of this built-in welfare system that they had for the poor right into their lifestyle. It's built right into the, the Jewish lifestyle there. Uh, let's see. Let's keep going. Verse 13. Uh, don't hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight, because if, if, a, if a man is uh, working for a daily wage, uh, that means he's, he's going to go home and feed his family with that, right? So he needs, he needs, that, he needs that money. So he's living day to day, so don't hold, hold back. Pay him right then. And it goes on and on and on. We'll skip some of these verses. It goes on and on. The Torah goes on to get really, really specific and practical about all facets of life for them. It, the Torah speaks about crops, uh, how to raise crops and how to harvest crops. It's about land. It's about debt. Uh, it's about paychecks. It's about savings, generosity. It's about compassion. It's about charging interest. It touches on all these areas. The Torah is about all these different things. And this is how you would live in the way of God, God's way. Now, a couple observations about all this. So first of all, in the Jewish uh, Jewish mindset, for the Jewish person, how you treated your fellow human being in normal day-to-day -day life, just in normal everyday interactions, was a reflection of your special relationship with God. You treated them this way because of who you are, because you belonged to Yahweh, and he had made you his people. And so that's reflected in the way you treat other people. And so even the regular everyday parts of life, like food, the things you eat, uh, possessions, your money, your work, your neighbors, all of it had deeply spiritual significance. All of it mattered. All of it mattered. In fact, as many scholars have pointed out, there was no Hebrew word for spiritual life. They didn't have a word for that. It, it's, in, it's interesting. We might say to a friend, like, how's your spiritual life going? Well, well to, to the Jewish person, whether you're worshiping in the holy temple on the holy day or you're out plowing your field, it all reflected your special identity as a man or a woman who belonged to God. It wasn't spiritual life, it's just life. It's all life. Your faith wasn't something that you kept hidden away inside your head, like it was just like a list of beliefs. Like we would say today, oh, I keep my, I keep my faith personal, it's private, you know, it's a private thing. Um, but to them, it affected everything. It affected how they treated people and how they even harvested their own field. It informed every facet of your life. And so everything was tied to your spirituality because everything in life matters to God. Everything. Amen. Amen. Now, okay, so that's the times, that's the Jewish times. Let's skip forward about a thousand years to the times of Jesus and see what's happened in Jewish society by the time Jesus comes on the scene. By that time in the year nothing, A.D., uh, Israel has been absorbed into the Roman Empire. Uh, and most of the Jewish people, it's, this is a bad time. The Jewish people are suffering terribly. There's this massive collapse of, the way of their way of life, a collapse of the economy. Estimates say today that 80 to 90 percent of the people living in that Palestine, what they called it at this, what the Romans called it at the time, uh, were barely living off the land, kind of a subsistence 
peasant farmers. Um, and so there was, they were barely eating. You had massive poverty, massive famine, huge loss of those family lands. The family lands were, were being lost. Meanwhile, you had this very small select group of the ruling elite, okay? And these guys had everything. They were the haves. And so they were the haves and they would, what they did is tax the masses more and more and more. And, and they taxed basically the whole country into absolute destitute poverty so that the elites who lived in Jerusalem they would build bigger and bigger palaces. And there was huge building campaigns going on by Herod, who was kind of the puppet king in charge at the time. And uh, so just all of these palaces and huge buildings being built on the backs of most of the citizens. And so you have this unbelievably wealthy, tiny ruling class, and then you have everybody else. Now, if you're the 1%, right, as we would call them today, how do you collect taxes from the masses? Are you getting up in the morning and knocking on doors? No. You're hiring somebody to do that, right? You employ people to go collect those taxes for you. These people who collect taxes for the rich, for the government, they were called the telones. Telos is the word for, the Greek word for tax. And so the telones would go, they were the tax collectors, and would go collect the taxes. And these weren't Romans. They were typically fellow Jews who didn't mind facing the scorn of their countrymen. But they would go because this was, they would, they would be willing to sort of sell their soul to do this job, even though it was kind of just, they were con considered just sellouts completely. But it was a job that paid really well. And it paid really well because you were also expected to kind of skim off the top of whatever you collected. You got to skim a little off the top and keep for you. So it made for a pretty nice living while everyone else is basically starving. Now remember, for a God-fearing Jew in the time of Jesus, the rich getting richer while the poor get poorer and somebody's taken advantage of somebody else, to the Jewish people, this is a violation of Torah. This is a, a basic universal breakdown in the way that God says the world should work. And, and Torah was everything. I mean, you would consider that Telonis going around collecting taxes as somebody who was opposed to God himself. And so, and, and then not only that, but among these tax collectors, these telones, there was the architelones. And these were the tax collectors who were in charge of the tax collectors. They were the, the uber tax collectors. They were in charge of everybody. And that person basically was the most hated man in town, if you were an architelones, okay? Now, let's look at the book of Luke. We're in the gospel of Luke now, chapter 19. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified there, but he's passing through Jerusalem, or he's passing through Jericho. And Jericho was an interesting place. It's a place that was about a half day's journey away from Jerusalem, and it was a place where the rich would go and build their, we would say summer homes, but it was their winter homes. When Jerusalem got cold in the winter, they would go to Jericho and live in their winter palaces. And so there was a lot of rich people there because it stays warm. It's down there, the Dead Sea. So that's where Jesus is passing through Jericho. And verse 2, it says there was a man there named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. This is an architelones, right? He's the chief. And he was rich, of course. He was trying to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was going to be passing that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. All right, so you have this Jewish rabbi is passing through town. And this Jewish rabbi is different. He, he is creating a buzz. I mean, he is going around. People are being healed. And he is calling people back 
to, to Torah, to live that Torah, but he's calling them to live Torah in a fresh way, right? He's saying things like teshwa, which is repent, turn, come and live the Torah kind of life. But he's calling people to this new kingdom of God. He keeps talking about the kingdom. It's not just about following the old rules like the other rabbis were telling everybody to do. He's, he's calling people to embrace this new identity, right? Become this new kind of human being. Now, a rabbi would never go into the home of a tax collector because the tax collector, this is a mean, horrible, evil, nasty person, right? And it, it, they, they have violated Torah. But Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over. Come down from the tree. Let's go home. And verse 6, so Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome him. And all who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. So the religious people are like, whoa, he's, he's going to go hang out with this sinner. And the poor people are like, what, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you hanging with? I thought you were on our side. Come on, what are you doing? But Zacchaeus stood there and he said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. That's from the Torah. It's a reference to Exodus there. And then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham, which is the most powerful thing you could say. A rabbi could say to somebody, this, they're saying, he's saying, this is a child of God. He's declaring Zacchaeus a child of God. For the son of man came to seek out and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. So Jesus here, I mean, the, the rich and the powerful, he's upset in their system, right? Because, I mean, if Zacchaeus isn't collecting taxes, that's the revenue flow there that he's messing up there. And we already know he makes the religious leaders mad, their whole temple system. And, and then he makes, the, he, you know, and that he's hanging out with sinners at all. And you're right, and then the poor are kind of like, well, we don't understand why you're doing this. Why aren't you telling him off? Why are, you, why are you associating with this guy? And Jesus is, it's almost like he's like, I'm not really involved in your culture war at all. I'm calling, I came here to seek out and save the lost in whatever socioeconomic demographic I happen to find them. That's who I'm after, right? So Zacchaeus has this moment of clarity and repentance and restitution. And Jesus' response is today salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. By the way, Jesus' name uh, in the Hebrew is Yeshua, which means salvation. So Jesus is a little pun on, he's making a little pun here. Salvation is coming to your house. It's like saying Jesus is coming to your house. It's super funny if you speak Hebrew. If you, if you don't, not so much. But anyway. Now, by the way, what, what, what does Zacchaeus' salvation center on here? What is it centered around? Is, is Jesus saying salvation has come because of something Zacchaeus believes? Did Zacchaeus pray a prayer? Did he sign like a statement of faith? I agree to these lists of doctrines or something like that? No, 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 no. What does he say? He says, I'm going to give half my stuff away right now, right off the top. And then anybody that I have defrauded, I'm going to make it right personally. I'm going to make it right personally, whoever I've wronged. And Jesus says this right here. This is what I'm talking about. This, he gets it. Salvation has come to this house. Now, 
I want to look at a few other things that Jesus says in his teachings, because uh, especially in his parables, if you look at the parables of Jesus, he spends more time, uh, he talks about money and possessions more than he talks about prayer, more than he talks about beliefs or anything else, more than keeping the commandments. So if you're in Luke right now, just flip over to chapter 12. I want to show you two pictures here that Jesus uh, paints that as I was reading these, these are extremely jarring to me when I'm reading these, these stories. This is kind of like uh, surprising things uh, when you're, you're used to one picture of Jesus as just being sort of like the really sweet guy who walks around, you know, holding a lamb and like petting kid, kids on the head and stuff like that. This is, a, this is Jesus. He tells it like it is. He tells these shocking stories called parables, you know, and many times we, we've talked about this before. We had a whole series last year, I believe it was, on parables. He tells these shocking stories. Sometimes they're extreme. They have extreme characters, but he, to make a point, this one's no exception. Uh, just to kind of skip the intro, there's these two guys and they're arguing about an inheritance. And so Jesus tells them uh, a parable in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, now in, in the Jewish way of thinking too, to, to have a land that produces abundantly was a sign of the blessing of God. That would be a sign that you have the favor of God on you because your land produced. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Now, do you think the people listening to Jesus who were standing around in his day had an opinion of what the rich man should do, right? Yeah, oh yeah, they did. Most everybody in the nation are in destitute poverty, right? And, and they're starving and the Torah says to share. So they would have, if they jumped in, they would be like, I know what he should do. And this man is like, what should I do with, with my food? I have more, I have literally more than I know what to do with. Then he said, hmm, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Now, this is, this is a pretty shocking parable. It's pretty jarring. In, in this parable, Jesus talks about somebody doing something so horrible. Think about it. So horrible. As far as I can tell, if you can find someone else, let me know after service. Uh, but as far as I can tell, this is the only place where Jesus talks about somebody who does something so heinous and evil that they don't deserve to live another day. And what is it this person does? Is it rape? Is it murder? Abuse? Theft? No, it's somebody who has more than they need, and in response, instead of giving and sharing and being a blessing, they hoard and they store it up. And then to make matters worse, he, he, he not only hoards his stuff, what does he say? And then I'll just take it easy. So what does that mean he's doing with his time? He's hoarding his time. He's wasting his time. In Jesus' teachings, he's all about grace. He's about love. He's like, this is the kingdom. Everybody's invited. Everybody come in. Everybody's included. And in this parable, this man has been blessed. And instead of sharing the blessing, he chooses to build bigger barns and then sit back. And this is the kind of thing 
where the, the God character in the parable says, you have squandered the very breath of life I've gifted you and are no longer entitled to your breath, basically. Wow. Right? Now, keep in mind, this is a parable. Jesus uses extremes. God's not going around killing people for being stingy. But this is a point he's making. This is the attitude that, that God abhors. Now, Jesus gets, he gets even more hardcore than this. A couple of pages to your right in uh, chapter 16. Jesus speaks about hell about a dozen, uh, in, you know, in some form or another about a dozen times in the Gospels. But as far as I can tell, there's only one instance where he speaks of a particular individual going to hell, and it's in this parable. And uh, so we're in chapter 16, verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. It says even the dogs, which in Jewish consciousness would be like the lowest station of life you could be in if you're with dogs, would come and lick his sores. So we're just talking about absolute humiliating poverty here. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, verse 23, uh, in Hades where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue from an agony in these flames. Um, there's a lot we could say about this, but I'm going I'm, I'm to kind of try to stick to our point here today because I want to pause for a second because there's something going on right beneath the surface here. His whole life of this rich man, the beggar sits outside the gate of his palace, uh, the rich man's palace, and all the rich man has to do is bring out some of his leftovers to ease that poor man's suffering, which he doesn't do. And now the rich man is in hell and is his request for Abraham or for an angel to come bring him a drink? No. What does he want? Who does he want to dip the tip of his finger in cool water? Who does he ask for? He says, Abraham, send Lazarus to come serve me. He still doesn't get it. He's on the hell side of the gulf. There's Lazarus, and he's like, still looks on Lazarus as a servant to him. And it says, but Abraham says, child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. This is the only place I can find where Jesus tells a parable about a particular character in hell. And again, what is the context Somebody had riches, somebody had nothing. This person was right outside the gate and they literally don't lift a finger. Now, I want to look at a, something else Jesus says. One more thing that Jesus says. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 6. 
There was an expression in Jesus' day. They had this expression uh, that they would talk about somebody who was greedy and somebody who always had to get more and how they always wanted to get something and covet it. They would covet it. They wanted it. And the expression was, this was having a bad eye, having a bad eye. And somebody who was generous was known as somebody who had a good eye. Uh, I'll show you the, the words in Hebrew. Over here, it's ayan tovah, having a good eye, being a generous person. Over here, ayan raya, having a bad eye. And so um, being greedy or, or stingy, being blind to the needs around you. And so, uh, so folks would say, well, I had a bad eye towards that thing. I really, I wanted it. In other words, I, I just coveted it. I wanted it in a greedy way. Or that person, boy, they have such a good eye, uh, that ayan tovah. So well, that means they're generous. So Jesus takes this popular euphemism of his day and he spins it. He takes it a little deeper here. In uh, Matthew chapter 6, he says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, if you have eye and tovah, your whole body will be full of light. So if you're generous, if you're giving, it's going to affect your whole life. It's just going to affect everything about you. Because remember, everything is a reflection uh, of your walk with God. Everything's spiritual in our life. Verse 23, but if your eye is bad, eye and raya, if, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Because you can't serve two masters, right? Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money or mammon, but that, that, that idea of the riches. You cannot serve both God and your stuff. Right. If you have a bad eye towards things, it's going to affect your whole being. It's going to hold you in bondage, in darkness. If, if you're generous, if you give, if you're free with your stuff, it'll profoundly affect every single area of your life. I was thinking about a, a, a little story that happened to me. This is many years back. I had the chance to get to go to Africa, to Kenya, and it was uh, just an incredible experience just, just to get to see beautiful people that God loves uh, just outside of my four walls and everything I grew up to be used to. And uh, we were on a trip, and there were several, several people from the church on the trip. My father-in-law was on the trip, and uh, we went there. And we landed, uh, this is a long way. If you've ever been to Africa, you know, it's a long trip, right? It's like eight, nine hours. Like, that's just the halfway, usually somewhere in Europe. And then you got to get on a plane, another eight or nine hours or so like that, all the way into Africa. And then you land in Nairobi. And I think it was like, in the, you know, it's usually in the middle of the night. You land there. And so, you know, you're tired and you finally made it, though. It's like, whew, we made it all the way here. I'm excited because, man, you know, here it is. I mean, I am not in Kansas anymore. This is not Nairobi, Kenya. This is super cool. And uh, everybody's, you know, going to baggage to get their stuff and go to that little carousel, that fun place where all the bags are going round and round and round. You have that moment where you're seeing the bags go round and round and round. And you're standing there watching the bags go round and round and round. And the number of those bags get smaller and smaller. And you're still standing there. And they go round and round. And after a while, you realize there's a bag missing here. There's, there's a couple of suitcases that is not on this carousel. And then you get to go to that really fun room, you know, with the one with the long line of people who also are missing bags. So everybody's in a great mood and uh, you get the chance to, you know, just experience the love of Jesus uh, with everybody. So here we are. I don't know how many thousands of miles from home. Uh, I got nothing. I got nothing to wear at all. I mean, this was everything. 
And uh, thank God, my father-in-law, who was my new father-in-law at the time, he was my new father-in-law, uh, agreed to, we, we were kind of the, we kind of the same height. And so he was like, I'll let you borrow some clothes. And so I really appreciated that very much. He even let me borrow his undies. I mean, <laughs> new father-in-law, we took that relationship to a new level really quick. It was, it was a beautiful, I, he let me keep them too. Isn't that a generous of him? Man, I tried to give him back. He didn't want them. I don't know why. Um, but you know, I mean, you've been there. You've pro- um, how many of you ever lost luggage when you go somewhere? Yes. Oh my goodness. This seems like a simple thing. They have one job, right? To get you and your luggage safely to the place. And ah, uh, oh, the hassle. And just, just, you know, and you don't have your stuff. And I had other things in my bag, all these little, you know, things I was taking um, to assist me on the trip and some music and Bible and book, you know, just different things that was going to, everything was going to be perfect. And it's all just gone in the ether, uh, wherever that, wherever those things go when they get lost. And uh, so anyway, so we're, we're going about the trip and I'm still kind of bugged about this. You know, this is, this is just so annoying. And every once in a while we get on like somebody's satellite phone and talk to the airline and they're like, yeah, it's somewhere. We're gonna, it's, it's like in Des Moines or, or I don't know, Holland or somewhere, but it's going to be there someday. It'll be there. Um, so it's like, whatever, whatever this, you know, and just going through this anyway, one day we, we go and, uh, we go to, uh, we go out, we get in the trucks and we head out off the highway and we're going down the highway into kind of the central part of the country. And it's interesting. And then the highway stops and we just keep going though. You, you don't let that stop you. You just keep going. It's like the road or the highway department said, this is as far as we decided to go. And so, um, but the people we were going to was out that way. And so we just keep driving and we keep driving and it's bumpy and it's dusty. And we get into this area of land that if it's like all, it's like, like the people, the different people groups, of Kenya got together and said, uh, these people right here, we're going to give the worst land to. It is like the most desert, scrub, rough, dusty granite. And these people were called the Pakot. You've heard us talk about them, I'm sure. The Pakot tribe. And we go out there and just for a little, little boy from Pasadena, I'm telling you what, it was such an eye opener. We go out there and these beautiful people are welcoming us. And they are not worried about anybody having lost their luggage or their change of clothes because they are barely wearing any at all. They have other than the beautiful handmade jewelry that they have around their necks. And just, and they are so joyful and they're so happy that you're there and they're pulling out these bottled Cokes that they save just for visitors, just for use. You could have something to drink. And I'm like, what are they drinking? Because there's nothing. It's just dust everywhere. And uh, we're just having this moment. And, and it came back into my mind, this idea of lost luggage. And do you ever have like the, one of these moments where like all of your, your petty like gripes and annoyances just come into like laser focus of what a self-absorbed little jerk you can be sometimes, you know, and how petty you can be about things. There's these moments when you are confronted with, with yourself, with the, the stuff inside you that you didn't, you don't even acknowledge most of the time, but when you see it, uh, 
it's, it's harsh and you ask yourself in the grand scope of things, why do I care so much about stuff? Why do I care so much about stuff? We form these strange bonds with our possessions, don't we? And this isn't true if only if you're rich or only if you're poor or middle class or anywhere. No, this is just human. And we're not often aware of it until these moments when our eyes are opened and we realize how insane it is, these connections that we make in our heart to our stuff. Anybody with me? How many of you had that experience where maybe somebody borrowed something of yours and it came back and it had the little scratch and, and it really tweaked you and you're like, I shouldn't care this much, <laughs> right? Or they borrowed the jacket or whatever it was or they came over to your house and they bumped into the thing and, and later you, you found it and it got under your skin and you're like, I should not care this much about my stuff. And we're brought sort of face to face with this unholy connection with our stuff. And I think what happens in Luke chapter 19 is Jesus charges into the middle of Jericho and Zacchaeus, the, he, this connection that Zacchaeus has to his money, it gets severed when he hears the message of the kingdom, when he hears Jesus talking. And his response is, I got to give. I got to give this stuff. I don't want my stuff to have me. I don't want to be a slave. I need salvation, salvation of my stuff. I need salvation from the bondage it holds over me, right? And, and that's why, I mean, Melissa and I, we, we've committed to give a, a chunk of our resources to generations. We tithe, we give towards 100 Club, um, we give to orphans, we give into our community, wherever there's a need that we can touch. And we discipline ourselves to do that regularly. We discipline ourselves, not because like we're so pure and good inside or anything like that, but it's because we know, she, she and I know how quickly and easily we can get attached to money, to get attached to stuff, to little things. We give because, I, I give because I, I don't want my stuff, I want to make sure my stuff and my money doesn't have me. Right. We also give because we don't want to ever let our love for people become something that is just theoretical. It's easy to do. It's like, well, I love people. And it's, what do we mean by that? Sometimes we just mean kind of like, I, I generate a nice warm feeling inside, right? It's something abstract. It has to be concrete. It has to be real or it's just fluff, right? The Bible says it has to be real or it's just tinkling noise, right? Clanging cymbals, because all of this life is spiritual. All of this life and everything we do and touch is sacred. So maybe we could say it this way. As I've been reflecting this week on this teaching from Luke 19. God doesn't want my freedom. Or God doesn't want my money. God wants my freedom. He wants to give me my freedom. Amen. God isn't like, man, I'm kind of broke. Can I get some money from you guys? No, no, no. God wants you free. Can we just groove with that for a second? He wants your freedom. He wants you free from the bondage of our stuff. And maybe that's why Jesus talks about money and possessions so much. Because he knows how we end up bound 
and attached to stuff. And we don't even realize it until our kid breaks it, you know? We don't realize it until our, our neighbor backs into it. <laughs> Come on. Until your friend gives it back and the, the motor makes a little funny noise now. <laughs> Anybody with me? You know what I'm talking about? Is there anything, if you're really honest, you need to own up to what owns you? Amen. Is there anything you have or, or the, so anything that maybe you just desire and it is taking up way too much headspace, too much heart space? And if you're being honest, you know it. And another way of asking this might be, is what words come to mind when I think about that thing, that thing that I, I value? What words come to mind? Is it gratitude? Because that's one gauge for me personally. Does gratitude come to mind? Is, the, is that thing producing me gratitude, appreciation, joy? Or does it just seem to be a source of tension and worry, anxiety and defensiveness, possessiveness? And maybe what we need is to open up our grip and just sort of mentally place it in Jesus' hands to hear him say those big, powerful words, today salvation, salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this apartment, this garage, this attic, this closet, this checkbook, this 401k, this barn, this shed, whatever it is. So I wonder if Jesus, when, whenever he sees somebody extending and saying, I want to be, be a blessing. Look at, look at what God has blessed me with. I want to be a blessing. Somebody who's a, when Jesus sees somebody about to sell some family land and someone steps in and says, no, 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 no. We're going to take care of that for you. We'll take care of that. I wonder if Jesus says, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Salvation has come because it's all sacred. There isn't your stuff over here and God's stuff over here, right? When we acknowledge that it all belongs to him, it's all for his glory, it's all for his kingdom. That's the key to living in real freedom, to experiencing real, total salvation, true wealth. Amen? Amen. Today, uh, before we go, we're going to receive communion together. And uh, so if you have those elements with you, you can be getting those ready. You can unwrap those. If you, d if you didn't get one when you walked in, there's some in that back over there. There's some against that wall right over there. You can grab one for you. If you're watching this by live stream right now, I mean, we encourage you, we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. Just grab some, some bread and some juice right there where you're at. I want to read... The Apostle Paul's words out of 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after the supper, saying, the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if you're with us today, you love Jesus, if you're following Jesus, we invite you to partake of this with us. We don't care if you're part of this church or a different denomination or whatever. You don't have to belong to any club. Uh, this is just something that we believe if you're a, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, that we invite you to do this with us. Um, let me pray for us and then we'll take it together. Would you bow your heads? Hallelujah. Dear God, we thank you so much, Father. We take this bread and this cup right now and we acknowledge of how desperate we need you. Lord God, we want to be free. We just want this message, Lord God, to grab us, get a hold of us, upset, uh, upset our status quo. Father, Lord, give us the courage to live more simply if that's what we need to do so we can be free, to be less connected to stuff and more able to be a blessing to other people. Help us to be free, to soar, bring salvation, not just to our souls, but to our stuff. Bring salvation to our homes and in our workplaces, in our bank accounts. Bring salvation to all the areas, Father, that we've been holding back, that we're too afraid to open up to you. Bring salvation to our relationships. Lord God, just open our eyes. Expand our eyesight from just me and mine and my tribe to expand wider and wider and include more and more people. We want salvation, Lord God, to come to this house. Please penetrate our souls, impact our world. Be part of our daily life with your kingdom. Show us what freedom really looks like, Lord. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's take it. Thank you, Jesus. The blood of Christ shed for you. Jesus. What can we say but thank you? Thank you, Lord. We do this in remembrance of you, Jesus. But also, we do this in remembrance of how you taught us to live. May we give of ourselves like you gave yourself for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Our prayer partners, uh, if you're one of our prayer partners today, you can come down front. And uh, if you need prayer for anything at all, we invite you to come down and let these guys pray with you. Uh, it's not the same when we pray. We, these, these guys will pray with you in faith. Whatever's going on in your life, they would love to. Uh, if you want to send us your prayer request too, there's a lot of different ways to do that. You can send it to us online or using that church app. Um, and uh, we have a whole prayer team that would love to just jump into prayer, that, that fight of faith with you. Amen. Friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance to you and grant you peace in this day that we're living. Hallelujah. Grace and peace to you. Amen. Bye-bye.